I think one of the most interesting conversations in the Bible takes place at the end of Jesus' earthly life. It may be the last intimate personal conversation he has with anyone prior to his crucifixion. It's the conversation that Jesus has with Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Palestine. It's a conversation that highlights two very different men with two very different and opposing agendas. When you hear Pontius Pilate speak, you get the idea of the sense of a man who's agitated. He's upset because he, you have this sense that he feels like he's caught in the middle of this religious dispute among Jews. You can hear it in his agitated response, in his questions, in his cynicism, in his sarcasm. And in Jesus, you hear something different. In Jesus, however, you hear a man who is presenting to Pilate who he actually is. In all four Gospels, we read of this conversation between Jesus and Pilate, but this morning I'd like us to focus on how John presents it in his Gospel. In John's Gospel, he tells us of this conversation, and right before this, John tells us that that Jesus had been arrested, that he had been brought before Caiaphas, the high priest, and Caiaphas asks him questions, and then the Jewish leaders take Jesus from Caiaphas to the Roman governor's palace. Pilate, the Roman governor, comes from a conversation with the Jewish leaders, comes back into the palace, and we pick up the story in John 18, beginning in verse 33, and and this is what John writes. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. What is truth? In that question, a rhetorical question, likely a rhetorical question at best, Pilate doesn't want an answer. Pilate's not looking for what Jesus is going to say in response to him. Pilate is making a statement. Pilate is saying, what is truth? What is true for you may not be true for me. What you say is truth probably isn't truth at all because your truth is not my truth. Truth is relative. And just like in Pilate's day, in our time, We live in a world where many people do not believe there is an absolute truth, where many people do not believe that there is a truth that gives purpose and meaning to all of life and all of history and is true whether one believes it or not. We live in a world where most people believe that truth is relative, that truth is whatever you believe, that whatever you believe is true might not be true for me. 
that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and we'll all be good. Where a person's individual, where an individual person or culture has their own truth and any one of those truths can be true. Where one can say Jesus is Lord, another can say Allah is Lord, a third can say I am Lord and all can be right because everything and all truth is relative. There is no absolute truth. Alan Bloom, in his best-selling book, The Closing of the American Mind, wrote this. He writes, There is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes, or says he believes, that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be uncomprehending that anyone should regard relativism as not self-evident astonishes them, as though he were calling into question two plus two equals four. These are things you don't think about. The students' backgrounds are as varied as America can provide. Some are religious, some atheists. Some are to the left, some are to the right. Some intend to be scientists, some humanists or professionals or businessmen. Some are poor, some are rich. They are unified only in their relativism and in their allegiance to equality. And the two are related in a moral intention. The relativity of truth is not a theoretical insight, but a moral postulate the condition of a free society, or so they see it. The world views truth as being relative. Whatever is true for you may not be true for me. Whatever is true for me may not be true for you. And it's not only the world. That idea, the mindset of relativism seeps its way into the church. So it's not only out there, it's not only those people who believe truth is relative. George Barna conducted a survey, and the Barna Research Group found that only 23% of evangelical Christians, that's people like you and me, 23%, only 23% of evangelical Christians have a strong belief in absolute truth. Only one quarter of evangelical Christians have a strong belief in absolute truth, a truth that gives meaning and purpose for all of life and for all of history and is true no matter whether one believes it or not. Our religious views and our religious positions are viewed as preferences and not truth. We live in a world and sometimes within a church that believes that truth is relative. And that's a problem. Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, it's found on page 976 in the Bible that the church provides. I'd ask you to follow along this morning. We're going to be digging into a bunch of verses. So Hebrews chapter 13, we've been on this journey of faith, journeying through the book of Hebrews. We have learned throughout this year that we are being encouraged to see with eyes of faith, to see what God may be doing, to see who God is. And we've been encouraged to see with eyes of faith. And two weeks ago, we saw this great encouragement that the author of Hebrews gave to us in Hebrews 13, verse 8. He said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he reminded, we 
looked at the truth that Jesus Christ is the same in his love for us. He's the same in his presence. He's the same in his truth. He's the same in his willingness to receive us. And he's the same in his power to save. Jesus Christ is the same. And now this morning, the writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, is going to remind us that Jesus the Christ is the same in his truth. He wants us to know, he wants us to know in all of our beings that Jesus Christ is truth. Look at Hebrews 13 verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We've been told in verse 8 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And now here in verse 9, the very next verse, we're told, the author tells us, do not be carried away by any kind of strange teachings. Strange teachings here has the idea of teachings that are foreign to the truth, teachings that are false. The author says, do not be carried away by any kinds and all kinds of false teachings. Know the truth. The author of Hebrews is concerned that his readers are going to be carried away by false teaching. He's concerned that they are going to follow false teaching and that they are not going to pursue the truth. Now, although his Hebrew audience at the time this was written knew exactly what he was talking about, we're not exactly sure what he was talking about. But we know he's referring to foods. And it's likely he's referring to clean and unclean foods and the ceremonial use of those foods. You see, the foods were used by the people within the ceremonies, within the temple ceremonies, in order for the people, for the worshiper, to present themselves pure and righteous before God. The foods were used in order for the individual, the worshiper, to be accepted by God. So whatever the nature of these ceremonial foods, it's clear that the author is saying these ceremonial foods are of no use to you because they take you away from the truth. They take you away from the truth that God gives us his grace through Jesus Christ. So stay with the truth. Don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. That's why this verse comes right after verse 8. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the same. Jesus Christ remains solid, steady, unchanging. The author says, stay away from that which is false. Stay away from that which is not true and pursue the truth that Jesus Christ is the same. Now, it's more than that. It's more than Jesus Christ is just the same. That's important. It is, this is Roman numeral one if you are taking notes. Roman numeral one if you are taking notes is Jesus Christ is truth. He's not just the same. Jesus Christ is truth. Now, I'm going to put on my lawyer hat this morning, and we are going to walk together through an argument that establishes Jesus Christ as truth. So take your Bible and turn back to John 18. Turn back to John 18. 
This is the story of the conversation between Jesus and Pilate. It's found on page 879 in the Bible that the church gives. Now look, John 18, look at verse 37. Listen again to what Jesus said to Pilate. You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus tells Pilate that the reason he was born was to testify to truth. He also tells Pilate that everyone on the side of truth listens to him. How does he testify to the truth? How does Jesus testify to the truth? Well, the writer of Hebrews has already given us a clue. He's already given us the first leg of the argument of how Jesus testifies to the truth. Look what he writes in Hebrews chapter 1, first verse, right out of the gate. This is what the author writes. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Who's his son? Good, you're with me. Whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus Christ testifies to the truth because Jesus Christ is the truth. Look at the things that he's done. He's appointed heir of all all things. He's made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Remember that statement. He sustains all things by his powerful word. You want to know truth? Do you want to really know truth? Do you want to know a truth that gives meaning and purpose to all of life and all of history and is true whether one believes it or not? That truth is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is truth. And truth, because Jesus Christ is truth, truth is knowable. Truth is not just a proposition or an idea. Truth is actually a person. And because truth is a person, truth is knowable. Now, Jesus makes many incredible statements to us in the Word of God. There are many times Jesus makes statements. And many of these statements that Jesus makes, in all honesty, are completely ridiculous if they're not true. Many of Jesus' statements, literally, they're crazy. They are ridiculous statements if they're not true. Turn back just a couple pages to John 14. John 14, page 875. Jesus here in John 14 is eating his last meal with his disciples, and he's telling his disciples that he's going to go away. But if he goes away, he's going to make a place for them, and he's going to come back and get them, so don't worry. Pick it up in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What did he just say? 
Now, I think we're, a lot of us are church people. We've grown in church. We read this verse, and we just kind of gloss right over and say, yeah, sure. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Do you realize what he has just said? If this is not true, this is a completely ridiculous statement. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Here, Jesus is not just claiming to speak the truth. He is claiming to be truth. Look at how... uh, This writer puts it in Crisis of Belief, his book, Stephen Neal. He says, this does not mean that Jesus was stating a number of good and true ideas. It means that in him, the total structure, the inmost reality of the universe was for the first time and forever disclosed. Look at this quote. Jesus is depicted as the one in whom is manifested the creator of the universe, the fullest disclosure of the character and the person of God, the focal point of all that God has been doing in history, the chief personality in God's creation of the world, the ruler of natural forces, the watershed of human destiny, and the only path to the presence of God. And look at this second part. Focus on this. Jesus is portrayed not simply as the greatest teacher, but as the foundation of all teaching, the truth itself. Jesus says, I am the truth. Now let's continue to build our argument. Turn back some more. Turn back to John chapter 1, the first verse of the book of John. The first thing that John writes down in his representation of Jesus and Jesus' life. Remember now, in John 18, we looked at Jesus and his conversation with Pilate. We just read in John 14, Jesus' claim to be truth. Now here, in John 1, the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, John speaks of Jesus as the Word. Now, whenever you hear the Word, as I read these verses... Think about Jesus. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jump down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, Jesus Christ, was in the beginning, was with God and was God. And the Word, Jesus Christ, was God. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. Now, interestingly... The Greek word logos that is translated here word can also be translated reason. And the Greeks associated reason with divinity. So now let's mess up with let's mess with the translation of this verse a little bit and listen to how it reads if reason is the translation of logos. In the beginning was reason. 
And reason was with God, and reason was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Down to verse 14. Reason became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In, I love this stuff. You cannot make this stuff up. You cannot create this argument. God, through the writer John, lays out this incredible argument that Jesus himself is truth. Look at what he says. The word is Jesus. The word is God. So Jesus is God. And the word is also translated reason. So Jesus is reason. Jesus is truth. In commenting on this passage, the sometimes controversial theologian William Barclay wrote this. Jesus is the expression of the mind of God. It is as if John said to the Greeks, for the last six centuries you have been speaking about the mind of God in the universe. If you want to see what the mind of God is, look at Jesus Christ. Here, full displayed, is that mind of God about which you have always been thinking and talking. The logos, the word, reason, has become flesh. The mind of God has become a person. It is one of the great ironies of history that when Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? He had the embodiment of truth standing right in front of him. But Jesus isn't standing right in front of us. Jesus isn't right in front of us this morning, so... What is it that we're supposed to do? Even though Jesus is truth, truth is not only personified and embodied in Jesus, truth is also embodied and presented in the Word of God. Truth is also presented in the Word of God. The Word of God is truth. Notice the play on words here. Jesus is the word of God, and we call this book, the book that is in my hands, the book that many of you are holding on to now, the word of God. These are God's spoken words put down onto paper to invest in our lives and to speak truth to us. So the first Roman numeral point, the first argument is Jesus is truth. Roman number, numeral number two is God's word is truth. The Bible is the spoken word of God written so that we can know truth. Jesus says as much in a prayer that he prays for his disciples and for us. Turn to John 17. Turn to John 17, page 878. In John 17, Jesus is praying a prayer following his last meal with his disciples. Let's pick up the prayer, uh, John 17, verse 15. My prayer is not that you, my heavenly Father, not that you, God, would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus says God's word is truth. This book that we have does not contain merely the words of men. This morning, we have read passages that John wrote down. John is speaking his words. We've read passages from the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is speaking his words, but it is not their word alone. Ultimately, it is the word of God spoken to us through these writers. And we believe that this is the word of God and that by inspiration, the Bible is an authoritative deposit of the word, of God's word, for all time. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Timothy. He writes, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is out of the mouth of God, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is the word of God, so the Bible is truth. What we hold in our hands, this book is truth. Because Jesus is truth, and the word of God is truth, we have truth. Now let's wrap this up. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. Page 879, in our text this morning, the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to remember that there is truth. There is absolute truth. Jesus is truth. And he warns us not to be carried away by all kinds of false teachings. But what is the particular truth that he wants us to recognize this morning? Yes, he wants us to know Jesus is truth. But there is a particular truth that he wants us to know this morning. Look again at verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. Remember, the new Hebrew Christians were turning back to Jewish food rituals. And there's many of these new Hebrew Christians who are considering turning back to these food rituals, trying to seek God's righteousness, trying to be declared righteous before God, trying to be acceptable before God. So they present their food, these ceremonial foods, and the author says, no, no, there is no ceremonial food that is going to make you right before God. It's grace. It's grace that makes you right before God. Now we think to ourselves, well, how does this apply to us? Because we don't deal in ceremonial foods. We don't talk about clean foods or unclean foods. We don't have ceremonial foods in our worship. But this is an issue for us as well. It's not the ceremonial foods at the temple altar, but we have our own foods. We have our own strange teachings. We have our own false teachings that we focus on. In the context of this verse, 
the false teaching that we tend to focus on is any kind of teaching that requires us to do something other than or in addition to believing in Jesus Christ to receive righteousness and God's approval. It's any teaching that calls for ritual, method, or accomplishment in order to seek God's righteousness and God's approval. This issue is the issue that regards and remains with almost every belief system and religion in the world. It is the idea that if I am good enough, if I do enough good, God will declare me righteous and will see me as accepted before him. This is the false teaching that many people deal with. This is a false teaching that even seeps its way into Calvary Church. That if I just do enough good, God will be pleased with me and God will accept me and I will receive eternal life. This is the biggest lie in all of the world that you or I can do enough good for God to accept us and for God to declare us righteous. And so many times this false teaching seeps into our mindset and we think, if I just go to church three times a week, if I pray and do my devotions for 15 minutes every morning, if I go upon the mission trip, if I give money to the church, if I join a community group, if I follow all the rules, and if I go on mission, if I can do everything that God wants me to do, then he's going to be pleased with me. Then he's going to declare me righteous. He is then going to accept me, and I am then going to receive eternal life. And it is the biggest lie in the world because there is nothing that you or I can do to receive God's merit. There is nothing that we can do. And the problem with pursuing those things is we end up making them our Jesus instead of things that lead us towards Jesus. What does the author say? The author says, no, don't pursue those good things in thinking that they're going to be your Jesus. They're never going to be enough. The author says, on the other hand, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. This grace that this author is speaking of literally means a free gift and is defined as the unmerited favor or blessing of God. Where do we find this grace? Where do we find this unmerited favor or blessing of God? The author tells us in verse 10, he says we find it at an altar. We find this grace at an altar. But this is a different altar than the altar that was in the temple that received the sacrifices of the animals. This altar is not the altar in the temple Our sacrifice is Jesus Christ. And the altar is not in the temple. The altar is right here. This is the altar of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, what I did for you on the cross is a demonstration of God's grace, of his favor, of his blessing. And all you have to do is come and feed at this altar and you come to this altar to eat the grace that God has provided. You come to this altar to receive love and forgiveness and acceptance. You see, when we pursue all this good stuff, All it does ultimately sometimes is produce guilt and failure. I just feel like I can't do enough. 
There's not enough things I can do to receive love, forgiveness, and acceptance. And the great news about grace being truth is the truth of grace says that you don't have to do anything other than come to the altar and feed on the grace of Jesus Christ. Each one of us want to be loved, forgiven, and accepted. And grace says that none of us can do that on our own. Jesus says, I did it for you. And not only at the cross are we loved, forgiven, and accepted, the cross also tells us that we're cherished. How else can you think about the cross? How else can you explain the cross? How else can you explain God who gave his son for you? How else can you explain the son who gave up his life for yours? When you come and eat grace at the cross, you receive love, forgiveness, and acceptance. And know that you are cherished by your heavenly Father. The writer of Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus is truth, the word of God is truth, and grace is truth. Jesus himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we live in a world that believes that truth is relative, that what may be true for one may not be truth for another. Lord, I pray that you would give each one of us the eyes of faith to see that truth is absolute, that there is a truth that gives purpose and meaning to all of life and all of history and is true whether one believes it or not. And we proclaim together before you, our Heavenly Father, that Jesus Christ is that truth and that you have given us your word, this Bible, which is also truth. And Lord, we thank you that grace is truth. So Lord, if there are any here this morning who are struggling, trying to do good to receive your acceptance, I pray, Lord, that you would remind them that all they have to do is eat at the altar of the cross, where your grace is full and free. And Lord, I pray that in that you would help each one of us to be followers of Jesus and him alone. It's in his name we pray, amen.